0: Welcome to Indie Matters,
1: the podcast from the Nevada Independent.
0: I'm your host Joey Lovato up here in Reno,
1: and I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas.
0: On this episode of Indie Matters, reporters Michelle Rendell's and Tabitha Mueller give some insight into what is going on at the legislature on week one of the 2021 session.
1: After that, we meet Elaine Marzola and Claire Thomas, two freshman assemblywomen from Southern Nevada.
0: And at the end of the show, we have our weekly coronavirus update with healthcare reporter Megan Messerly. It's been a newsy first week of the 2021 legislative session. Bills are introduced and everyone is adjusting to the new, mostly virtual way that the legislature is being conducted. I wanted to get the perspective of what it felt like in the building with far fewer people inside than usual. Reporters Tabitha Mueller and Michelle Rendell's gave me their take on how things are kicking off.
2: So it's very quiet, which in the past I think it's been a lot noisier, a lot more people involved, but right now because it's just lawmakers, their staff, and then a limited number of press. And so, you know, people are saying hi to each other or kind of Seeing one another in the hallways, but it's very quiet and not the usual hustle and bustle that you'd normally see during a legislative session. So there's only one entrance that's through the back right now. They have sensors on the door that you kind of swipe your hand over, and that opens, that kind of indicates for the doors to open. You walk in, if you haven't gotten a badge, you get your badge or you show them, you know, that you're allowed to be in the building. And then once a week you need to go get what's called a rapid COVID test. So you walk in and it's a just a nasal swab. Thirty minutes later you get the results back saying, you know, you're COVID negative. And basically just you need to have that COVID negative test once a week. Unless you have gotten a vaccine or you have had COVID, within, and had COVID and recovered from COVID within the last 90 days.
0: This session is also different for lobbyists. Normally they have to register with the legislature, but as of right now, they don't have to because they are not physically in the building.
3: People have to do their meetings over video conference. Normally, you would have lobbyists competing with you for uh, time slots with legislators. But at this point, it's just us wandering around along with the lawmakers and the staff. The lobbyists need to make their own appointments virtually. Lobbyists need to register so that there's some accountability there, that you know who is representing who and who else they're representing, because sometimes lobbyists have 25 different clients. And you kind of don't know, am I talking to the guy that represents uh, the gold mines and MGM or (laughs) the payday lenders? So sometimes they have a, a mix of clients. This also enables you to do just, yeah, like registration as a lobbyist and you would be able to tell, you know, which lobbyists are donating to lawmakers and things like that. And you're also prohibited from giving gifts, and you have some other restrictions around you that are meant to try to maintain the integrity of the process. But typically, the trigger was when you enter the building and start lobbying, as opposed to someone that's just, you know, at a distance, maybe making a phone call to a lawmaker. So right now, they have said that they want to pass a bill that would sort of update this to reflect the virtual environment we're in, and basically make it a requirement to register even if you're just a virtually lobbying lobbyist. But we haven't seen that bill yet, so at this point there's a bit of a a gray area going on.
0: One of the big developments this week has been the introduction of some of the bills that will be discussed during the session. We haven't seen all of the bills yet, probably not even close to all of them, but there are still a few standouts that people should be aware of. Michelle explains.
3: There have been a couple bills that we've sort of expected as it relates to the governor's emergency powers. One of those is one introduced on the Senate side that would limit the governor's declarations of emergency to 30 days. And then if you wanted to extend it, it would have to be a two-thirds vote of the legislature, which would involve really getting some bipartisan support to extend that declaration. Now, we are currently under a state of emergency that's been around for almost a year. So I think especially some Republicans are chafing at that, saying that this gives the governor some extraordinary powers, and we have no idea when it's going to end. As you can imagine, this is a Democratic-controlled legislature. The governor's a Democrat, so we don't expect these proposals are probably going to get very far in this legislature.
0: One proposal that is getting attention is the idea backed by Blockchains LLC to create a so-called innovation zone. The proposed legislation would allow them to build a futuristic city based on cryptocurrency that eventually forms what could be Nevada's 18th county.
3: So in the state of the state, the governor was very focused on economic development because obviously Nevada is in a tough place because our economy is not as diversified as we would like it to be. So among the five pillars of the economic proposal was something that he touched on just momentarily, and he called it an innovation zone. But up until this point, we haven't heard what an innovation zone is, and no one's really been able to explain it to us. But yesterday, we got our hands on some documents that are produced by Blockchains LLC, which is a tech company based in Story County, northern Nevada, headed by a guy named Jeff Burns. And, you know, they're really working on blockchain technology, which is sort of, as they describe it, you know, kind of rethinking the back end of the internet and kind of managing all this data and making transactions happen in real time and I'm probably explaining this very poorly but that's kind of the idea and they they're trying to make this power of the blockchain more accessible to normal people. So they're hoping to create apps and things like that to get people on what they call web 3. So we we learn what an innovation zone is essentially they want to create another county and they want companies essentially that have that own at least 50 1000 acres which is the AP did the calculation it's a massive amount of square miles of land that's undeveloped and you would have basically the ability to kind of secede from the county that you're in and assume basic services including healthcare and education and water power like so anyways and they would have yeah so we would basically have an 18th county and it would be kind of a company town run by blockchains. But to to qualify as an innovation zone, you have to be producing innovation and have all this land. So it was a really interesting kind of, the word I described it in the story was fantastical. I mean, it envisions like a city of 36,000 people living in this community that only operates using a cryptocurrency called Stablecoin. And Stablecoin is developed in Nevada, but then it's eventually going to take over the world. And then, you know, elections are held in the Innovation Zone, and the Innovation Zone has great power, and the governor's appointing the the governors of the Innovation Zone. So it was pretty... It's a little science fiction-y. It is science fiction-y. And if you look at the uh, renderings of what this city called they call it painted rock city. It definitely looks like a like something that would be on Mars. So the governor hasn't exactly endorsed the language that we saw yesterday. I don't know if he's going to be completely on board with this concept. And it just seems like a rather heavy lift to create a whole system where counties, new counties can essentially be created if you're a big enough company.
0: Another bill that was brought up from Republican Senator Settlemeyer and Hardy, as well as Republican Assemblyman Wheeler, had to do with requiring an ID to vote. Tabitha explains more.
2: This bill that would basically be an opt in kind of voter ID bill, and that would sort of have registered voters show photo ID when voting in person. And by opting in, it wouldn't be a requirement, but you know, counties, governments could say, all right, we want to have voters show their ID when they vote in person. So it wouldn't be mandated from the state, but it could be something that counties could do.
3: And the dynamics of this is, you know, I think most of the concern throughout the election was in the counties that Trump did not win, including Clark County. It's governed by a board that I believe right now is all Democrats and a lot more Democrat than the state, you know, as a whole. So you can imagine that even if we were in an opt in scenario, uh, Democrats who are really loathe to adopt voter ID requirements because they say it's just one more complicating factor for people to exercise their right to vote. And certain people, especially older people, maybe um, my 94-year-old grandma that no longer has privileges to drive, for example, may not have an ID that's current and as a result might not be able to vote because of that. So first of all, I think that faces the hurdles in, in the legislature of Democrats in general that control the legislature do not like this policy. And then even if it was passed, it would face the problem of being in Clark County, where Democrats really
0: pull the strings. The last thing that we wanted to let you know that happened this week was that two new lawmakers were appointed to fill vacancies. 24-year-old Fabian Donate was sworn in this week. He is replacing Senator Ivana Kinsella, who stepped down after the election to take a position with the new Biden administration. Since Kinsella was a Democrat, Democrats got to appoint her replacement and chose Donate. The second person who will be swearing in next week is Tracy Brown May will be replacing former Assemblyman Alex Acefa, who resigned amid an investigation into whether or not he actually lived in the district he represented. Brown May is an executive at Opportunity Village, an organization that does workforce training for people with disabilities that's it for week one of the legislature. Make sure to follow us for daily updates as the session chugs along. Our own Riley Snyder also has a fantastic newsletter called Behind the Bar that you can subscribe to on our website. And also make sure to follow us closely on Twitter and Facebook as we will be doing regular Facebook Lives from the building to give you quick updates on the goings on there. Welcome to the fourth installment of Freshman Orientation, the segment where we get to meet new members of the Nevada Legislature. This week we are going to start with Claire Thomas, a freshman Assemblywoman from North Las Vegas. A Democrat, Thomas has been active in the party for many years. She replaced Assemblyman Tyrone Thompson, who tragically passed away at the end of the 2019 session. Thomas is a clerk at the district attorney's office and also a retired Air Force vet.
4: Originally, I'm from Brooklyn, New York. I came here with the military. I was a Air Force military member when I arrived here, and that was back in 1982. So I've been here for this is my 37th year and I retired here. I'm glad to be in Southern Nevada and where the Valley has been my home for the past 36 years. I also have been married, divorced, and raised two children. I've been active in politics for probably the last 15 years, a member of the Nevada Democratic Party. Also, I am a graduate of CSN and a graduate UNLV where I've earned a bachelor's degree in psychology, and a master's degree in public
0: administration. On top of having two children, a son and a daughter, Thomas has four grandchildren. She tells us some of the things she likes to do with them and what she likes to do in her spare time.
4: I like being around my grandkids. I know not everybody says that, but I do, I do. And I like taking them to movies, I like um, bowling, I like reading, I love history. Because if we don't know the history of our country, then we repeat. And as you can see, we're repeating some things that we shouldn't have.
0: We asked Thomas about her legislative priorities. Two things she mentioned were universal full-time pre-K and reforms for veterans and mental health. But the one big thing that she touched on was health care, and it's personal for her.
4: I think that we've realized that universal health care probably is one of the best ways to get Health care to all of our citizens in the United States, but Nevada especially because we have a high military uh, veterans here that need health care. We have this pandemic that has caused so many deaths. We have people, our neighbors, our friends. My mom did not live here, but she is on the role of uh, COVID deaths and um, she died. Thanksgiving Day, and it affects me because I knew that health care is very important, but it really struck home when mom died. I don't want that to happen to others. Before it does, I think that we should listen to the scientists, be considerate of others that are around us, wear our masks, keep our distances. You know, I work for the district attorney's office, and in my cubicle, we wear our masks and it's important because you know, my neighbors are important. I want to see them. I don't want them to die. Like my mom and, and 350,000 others. So
0: health care. With the Black Lives Matter protests happening this past summer, a special session was called to address some of the systemic problems brought up during said protests. Thomas, who is black, brings up how she has had to talk to her son about dealing with police and the reform she wants to see.
4: I believe that with the marches that we had this past summer with Black Lives Matters and those are issues that every citizen should take in concern because equal justice means a lot. I'm one of those parents that when I talk about my son, I talked to him all the time whenever he went out. I would always tell him how to approach a police officer if he's approached by a police officer. Listen to Whatever they say, I used to tell them, if they tell, tell him to do jumping jacks, just do it and we'll, we'll handle it after. And that is one thing that as an African-American parent, why am I telling my son that? Why am I feeling that my son, when he goes out, that he has to be more compliant to an officer that has sworn to protect and defend and that he is just as, as a citizen, just as a Caucasian, an Asian, why is he different? And it shouldn't be. So I think that, not that I'm on that committee, but I think that I would like to sit in and listen to some of the uh, community's concerns, constituents' concerns, and bring that home and, and and. hopefully listen to the police law enforcement's concerns and come to a cohesive agreement of how to deal with reform.
0: All right, that was Democrat freshman Assemblywoman Claire Thomas from North Las Vegas. Now we're going to hear from Elaine Marzola, a Democrat who replaced Assemblyman Ozzy Fumo, who stepped down to focus on his unsuccessful run for state Supreme Court. Marzola is an attorney who ran in District 21 in Southern Nevada.
5: Originally from Brazil, I moved to the United States, straight to Las Vegas, actually, I'm um, about 36, 37 years ago. I've been here ever since, went to undergrad at UNLV, went to law school at Thomas Cooley in Michigan. My son was born and raised in Las Vegas as well. I've been practicing since 2011. Wow, almost 10 years. About two years ago, I opened up my own firm. And so definitely have learned the ups and downs of owning your small business.
0: Being an immigrant who worked her way up, we asked Marzola why she wanted to run for assembly.
5: Always knew I wanted to run. Always knew that I wanted to serve the community. It was always I wanted to go to law school, wanted to practice, wanted to serve. The sea came open and it was just perfect timing. Since I was in fourth grade, I wanted to be a lawyer. I took, you know, many detours. I had my son when I was young and so had to... Experience that and putting myself through school as a single mom is very tough, but just kept. I know this is what I want to do. I know this is what I want to do.
0: Marzola also told us a few things she likes to do in her spare time.
5: I love yoga, I love to meditate, to hike, I love, love, love to travel. And I like to dance a little bit. I am Brazilian. (laughs) Looking at now, there's not I dance in my living room, right? When I want to let out some steam, I put music on and it's like, you have nowhere to go, which it's okay. You know, I appreciate just even having the opportunity to still be able to dance.
0: We also asked Marzola what some of her priorities are in this coming session. She touched on several topics, but focused in on education and helping small businesses in the midst of the pandemic and how problems in one area can lead to economic problems in several other sectors.
5: Education, like I said before, is just very important to me. I think getting the kids back to school is important for the teachers and the students, right? But getting them back safe so that there are no health issues and we're not putting them, their welfare at risk. So that's very important to me. Obviously, small businesses, I believe last time I read, 500,000 employees were employed by small businesses, right? That's a lot. And so you have our small businesses suffering, shutting down, cutting people's hours. That trickles down to families. You can't feed your kids, right? You can't pay your bills. You can't pay co-pays for your insurance. It trickles down to everything. It's all connected. Even though it may look separate, it is definitely all connected.
0: After the election, when the conspiracy theory that there was election fraud was running rampant, there were several lawsuits filed in Nevada. Marzola told us from her perspective as a lawyer what she thought of the lawsuits filed by the Trump campaign.
5: File a lawsuit when it's valid, right? Don't file it just because I don't do that to our court system, don't do that to the individuals that you're suing. I mean, if you have a valid claim, I'm the first one, right? Like you said I'm a lawyer. It's your right. If If you're doing it just to bully, it's what I call Trump. And if that's why you're doing it, and if that's your thought process, don't do it because you're essentially going to put a bad mark in the system. It's not good, right? If you have legit reason to think that there was fraud, by all means, please, because that should not be the case everybody needs the opportunity to run fairly, vote, vote fairly, right? But if you don't have any proof, if you're just grasping for things, and you're taking up the court's time, and you're suing these people, and you're wasting their time, you're not respecting our justice system. You're not respecting our courts, our voters, our judges, right? Everyone involved.
0: Coming from Brazil, she gave us some insight into her life growing up in Las Vegas as an immigrant and how it shaped her worldview.
5: My mom and dad brought me to the United States, worked really, really hard to support myself and once they had my brothers. I saw them living paycheck to paycheck, really struggling. It is really, really tough. I came, I didn't know one word of English, right? Kids can be really mean. And so I got bullied a lot and that definitely shaped me. You see the discrimination that happens. My dad had a really heavy accent. People would say derogatory things to him. We didn't get the opportunities as easily. It's tough. And I wish that people would just understand that people don't come to this country to take advantage or to use the system, they come here for a better life. Just take a second before judging, just to take in what it took for these families or even these individuals to come here in the first place. We came here with the clothes on our backs.
0: That is it for part four of Freshman Orientation. Check out next week's podcast to meet more new lawmakers who are up in Carson City for the 2021 session. These interviews were originally conducted by reporter Tabitha Mueller and myself, and they were edited by me, Joey Lovato. You can find write-ups of all of the freshman assembly members and senators on our website in the coming weeks.
1: And now we want to take a minute to dive a little deeper into the context of the coronavirus in Nevada. To help us do that, as always, is Nevada independent healthcare reporter Megan Messerly. Megan, thanks for being here. Happy to be here. All right. So like we always do, we're going to start with some of the data, but I think I want to focus in on some of the trends. So noting now that we're recording at around 930 on Friday, February 5th, uh, what do those trends look like?
6: Yeah, it's a good question. So we've been talking about, uh, you know, cases decreasing right in Nevada for the last couple of weeks. We actually had some good news this week in which our statewide seven-day average went below 1,000 for the first time since November. So that was good news. We have seen that consistently uh, decreasing trend in cases in pretty much every single county with a couple exceptions of rural counties that have kind of ping-ponged around. Uh, But as of today, we're about uh, 280,000 cases statewide that have been identified since the beginning of the pandemic. But hopeful as we're seeing that data trend down. Now, we've talked about the death numbers, right, and how that kind of lags the case trends. Um, we are still seeing deaths fairly high. They're not at that peak, but they're still fairly high. We haven't started to see, sort of seen a consistent decrease in the way uh, that we'd like to, obviously. Um, but as of right now, we're at about uh, 4,400 deaths. A little bit more than that have been reported across the state. So we'll be keeping an eye on that data just to see how that kind of follows these decreasing case trends that we've seen. Um, and then it's worth noting, I know a lot of people ask about recoveries. Uh, the recovery numbers can sometimes lag if counties are sort of behind on figuring out who's recovered, who's an active case. But as far as we know, there are more than 250,000 recoveries across the state. So, you know, people get sick, they get better. um, And that's what goes into that number.
1: Hmm. So I want to ask about vaccine numbers. Obviously, people are very interested in the vaccine rollout. And, And we heard a little bit of news this week from the governor about equity when it comes to who has access to the vaccine. What does the vaccine rollout look like this week in Nevada?
6: Yeah, it's, it's a good question. So, you know, starting off with the top line number, there have been more than 290,000 vaccines administered across the state. Uh, but, like you mentioned, the big issue now is, is equity. How, how equitably are these vaccines being distributed to communities? And I obtained some data that showed that um, the, the highest numbers of vaccines, the greatest numbers, are in affluent communities, right? Uh, one of the, the, the biggest zip codes is 89052, which is in Henderson and includes um, Sun City Anthem. Obviously, Obviously, that, that zip code just includes a lot of older folks because it is a big retirement community. Um, same thing, you see, uh, you know, one of the Summerlin zip codes that is also uh, one of the b- biggest zip codes for seniors has a high number of vaccinations. So, in some ways, that makes sense. Uh, but the big question now is obviously, there are seniors, you know, spread across Clark County, not just focused in those retirement communities. And looking at those zip codes, are those folks 70 and up, uh, do they have the same access, you know, to vaccines proportionally? Obviously, there are fewer of them in those communities. But are they having the same chance to get uh, the vaccine as other folks? So that's, I think, going to be the big conversation uh, moving forward. But, you know, the, the, the bright uh, the bright light on the horizon is, you know, 8% of Nevadans have either been partially or fully vaccinated. 6.5% have gotten their first dose. 1.5% are fully vaccinated. Uh, and so we are seeing those numbers increase. So that's good news. But now the focus is really turning to, you know, one, we want to get those, you know, vaccines out as fast as we can. But two, making sure that those vaccines are getting out, you know, evenly across the population um, by age, making sure those are getting to underserved communities and folks who might not have resources to be, you know, sitting online and and refreshing, you know, for for hours and hours trying to get an appointment.
1: Hmm. And so a big issue with vaccines still has been that the supply is frequently a lot lower than the actual capacity of the state to put shots in arms. Is that still a bottleneck for Nevada?
6: Yeah, it still is. It's a bottleneck for Nevada, and it's a bottleneck for every other state state. Um, We still are receiving fewer doses from the from the federal government, our sort of allocation uh, than every other state per capita, except for South Carolina. That's still true. Nevada officials are still trying to figure out why that is, why our allocation is less per capita than other states. But you know, besides that, there just aren't enough doses right now to to go into everyone's arms. And so that's the issue that we're seeing. And, And Nevada, you know, has seen some some small increases in that First dose allotment, uh, which is movement in the right direction, but I think the question is, you know, will, will we continue to see that movement, um, and will we see significant increase? You know, because obviously any increase is good, but uh, we're still seeing very, very small numbers of, of vaccines coming into the state, and that really is the big roadblock right now for vaccine distribution.
1: Well, we will have to keep an eye on that, but we'll have to leave it there for now. As always, if you want to know more about the coronavirus in Nevada, you can head to our website, thenevadaindependent.com. There you can find weekly updates from Megan in her Coronavirus Contextualized Series, as well as a regularly updated dashboard with all the latest COVID-19 data. Megan, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters.
0: We'd like to thank Michelle Rendells, Tabitha Mueller, Elaine Marzola, Claire Thomas, and Megan Messerly for being on the show this week.
1: If you like listening to the show, consider leaving a rating and review wherever you listen. Or share it on social media. It'll help the show grow and reach more people.
0: Tell us how we're doing by sending us a comment, question, complaints, or even the sought-after praise. You can email me at joey at the or jacob at jacob at the
1: Local Reno band, People With Bodies, wrote and performed our original theme song. If you want to hear more of their music, you can find them on Spotify and Bandcamp. We had additional music this week from Lance Conrad, Storyblocks, and original music from our own Joey Lovato.
0: Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato.
1: And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solitz.
0: And we'll talk to you next week.